1: Tonight, I'd like to conclude the discussion of right thought. And as you recall, this step of the Noble Eightfold Path includes those intentions and aspirations that lead to wholesome actions and result in the welfare and happiness both of ourselves and others. These are thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of goodwill, And lastly, thoughts of compassion, which is free of all cruelty. And in this last section of right thought, the dichotomy between skillful and unskillful is so unambiguously clear. Because cruelty wishes to cause harm to people. It's the disposition to give unnecessary pain or suffering. It's a feeling... Of extreme heartlessness disconnectedness and we see the manifestation of this mind state of cruelty in many situations of violence throughout the world sometimes this feeling or mind state almost seems contagious you know with whole populations involved in killing fields of destruction You know, whether in Cambodia, in Rwanda, in Darfur, so many places in the world where this, it's like a mass madness takes over. And it's this particular mind state of cruelty. We see it in the destruction in so many places in the world of native cultures, in the violence and cruelty of slavery and its legacy of racism. Now, we see it in the targeted cruelty of homophobia, in the violence against women. The range and force of this mind state is extensive and far-reaching. Compassion is the antidote to this great destructive power. Compassion is the strong wish of the mind and heart to alleviate all suffering it opens our hearts to the suffering that's there and it overcomes our indifference. It's the strong and deep feeling in us that's moved to act in the face of suffering. You know, and Tiknat Han expressed this so well when he said compassion is a verb. It moves us to act. And it was this very feeling that motivated the bodhisattva in his long journey you know, over lifetimes to Buddha, to Buddhahood. Just imagine what a strong motivation it must have been to give rise to the effort necessary to attain Buddhahood. It was precisely this motivation of compassion. The Dalai Lama said something very interesting about this state of heart and mind. He said, compassion and love are precious things in life. They are not complicated. They are simple, but difficult to practice. So I find that quite interesting. They're simple, not complicated, but difficult to practice. So I think it's worth investigating why such beautiful and ennobling states are difficult to practice why do we not find it easy and it may reveal in this investigation may reveal even small and unnoticed moments of cruelty within ourselves that we're not aware of compassion arises out of our willingness to come close to suffering the problem is And one of the things that makes it difficult to practice is that even though we may want to be compassionate, and perhaps often are, it is not always easy to open to the suffering that's there. And just as there are many times when we don't want to acknowledge and open to our own pain, and we see this so often in our meditation practice, where it's difficult to open, To the pain or difficulty. Just as it's difficult to open to our own pain or suffering, we often don't particularly want to open to the pain or suffering of others. There are very strong tendencies in the mind that keep us defended, keeps us withdrawn, indifferent, or apathetic in the face of suffering. This indifference is often unacknowledged. You know, it has become very often so much a part of how we relate to suffering in the world, simply through indifference, that we don't acknowledge it, we don't see it in ourselves. And this is a great barrier to compassionate response. The poet Mary Oliver just expressed this really beautifully in a poem called Beyond the Snow Belt. And in the poem, she was talking about you know, a, a very bad storm some distance away, some counties north, where there was a lot of destruction. And yet in one's home area, everything was calm and peaceful. It was a, just a beautiful winter day. And she ends the poem by saying... Except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. I think that really captures why the apathy can be so strong. Except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. So as an experiment, watch your mind the next time you approach a situation of suffering just to notice what does the mind do it might be some pain in the body do we open to it do we welcome it do we pull back from it do we give it sidelong glances we can watch our own response to physical pain we can watch our response to emotional distress <coughs> Now maybe different emotions or mind states of discontent, or fear, or unworthiness, or loneliness, or boredom, or jealousy. No. Can we watch and see what is our response to these states of suffering? Are we open to them, or do we pull back? Do we avoid? We might look at our response in our interaction with a difficult person. How do we respond? Or to a situation of suffering in the world, perhaps of racial injustice or political or religious violence or natural disasters. What happens as we face these situations, either in person or often through the very vivid images of the media? Do we feel uneasy in the face of suffering? Do we withdraw? Do we numb out? Or do we let it in? I could see all of these responses in my own mind uh, during my time in India. And in one particular situation, for those of, you, those of you who have been there know that the state of the dogs roaming around is really pitiful. And they're not taken care of like we take care of dogs here so often just emaciated and completely covered with mange with their fur all gone you know basically starving and they're all around in the villages that were in Bodh Gaya. and very often you know I might be sitting in one of the tea shops and the dogs would come around and I just noticed the range of my response sometimes it was oh no you know it was so unpleasant you know, I just wanted to keep it away, keep it out. I don't want to see it. I'm having my nice cup of tea. And other times, when my heart was more open, I really let it in. You know, I just could see and feel the suffering. And just by letting it in, of course, there was much more motivation to actually act and do something, maybe offer a little food. So all of these responses, the whole range of response... Is within us the question for all of us is how can our hearts stay open given the magnitude of suffering that's in the world is it even possible to open to it all with compassion and diminish the subtle cruelty of indifference of not caring This challenge is not a theoretical one, or it's not a philosophical question for us, because it, it's not enough to admire the quality of kindness and compassion from a distance and simply acknowledge, yeah, those are good ideas, but something really removed from the practice of our daily lives. And it has to be more than simply cultivating these thoughts and feelings in the context of a meditation retreat. Our practice is really about the transformation of consciousness in such a way that makes compassionate responsiveness the default setting of our lives. Can we really open in such a way and understand things in such a way that that simply becomes the way we are, it becomes our natural response Compassion requires both openness and also equanimity. It's learning to let things in without drowning in the difficulties and without being overcome by the sorrow. It is simply to be with the truth of how things are. And this is precisely the interface of mindfulness and compassion. This is the gift of mindfulness to compassion. We become aware, we become mindful of how things actually are. We become aware of the suffering. We become mindful of it. We open to it. It's what we are doing in our practice every time we open to some pain and difficulty that we feel. We are actually practicing a compassionate response. Again, Thich Han, he framed this very well in his teaching on how to be with anger. You know, anger is a state of suffering when it's present in the mind. and He talks about it in a very beautiful way. He says the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack, and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. You know, that's a very different attitude than fighting with it or resisting it or pulling away from it holding it tenderly, you know, with mindfulness. So we're open to it and through that awareness we can see through it, see its depths, see its roots. What happens as we practice opening and coming close to the suffering in our own lives, with greater compassion. We then have greater strength and courage to be with the suffering of others. So the beginning of compassion and compassionate response is empathy. And this happens when we take a moment to stop and feel what is really going on with another person before rushing on with our lives. This is its own practice, just stopping to feel things for a moment. Because many times we might be cognizant of another's pain, but we don't take the time, even for just a few minutes, to come close to it, to really open to it. So we can practice this kind of openness in different different situations. Maybe it's feeling the distress of the restless yogi next to you. Not here, of course, but maybe on other retreats, you know, where somebody's just having a really hard time and moving and just to notice, do we get irritated? Oh, they're disturbing my practice. Why can't they sit still? Or do we stop for a moment and open up and feel the suffering underneath? Can we feel some empathy for what that person is going through? It might be opening to the suffering of someone who's really close to us, somebody who's going through a really difficult time, and just feeling it in an empathetic way. It might be to a stressful situation in the world. I had a very interesting experience, this is quite a few years ago now, about the really healing power of empathy. situation occurred here at the Forest Refuge when when it first opened. It was just a certain situation where somebody here did something, not a yogi, one of the staff people, that from my perspective was just really unskillful, you know, and tried to have some communication, but all I was getting back was just a lot of hostility. And so I I just got really angry. And I'm more the greed type. So to have that strong anger come in my mind was it's not the usual. So it's very strong. And I was just kind of stewing in the anger and then I'd try to be mindful, anger, anger, you know, and would go away for a moment. And then just I'd really be lost in the story again back and forth and it was so strong this was going on over days you know it was was a very powerful emotion and with all the kind of meditative tricks I knew it's I don't know I was hooked and then one day I was just going past the office and I overheard a conversation and one person in the office was speaking to another not the person involved they were just talking about how this other person was really suffering in the situation too. And it was amazing. That's all I needed to hear. It was like, it just opened me to the awareness of his suffering. And as soon as I could have that perspective, it was amazing. The anger dissolved in a moment. It was just, oh yeah, this is just a situation of suffering. We're both in this state and compassion arose so it was just it was such a powerful moment because it was just a moment and it all had to do with opening to the other person's suffering as a way of letting go of my own anger there might also be situations in the world where people are behaving really badly, very destructively, causing a great deal of harm, either to ourselves or others. And in those situations which are really destructive, our usual reaction is just some judgment about how awful that person is and what they're doing and feeling very often righteous in our judgment. But it's also possible, even in those extreme situations, to stop and feel what is going on in a larger context, in a larger context of understanding. This was described very powerfully by a Tibetan doctor uh, who for for some period of time was the physician to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. His name was Dr. Tenzin Chodak he was imprisoned by the Chinese for over 20 years. And he was tortured for many of those years. And he wrote an article describing his experience. And he described what made it possible for him to survive not only physically, but also with a heart that remained open and compassionate and not closing down in hatred and fear. So this is in a situation of extreme suffering you know and overt violence and cruelty he saw that his torturers his enemies were human beings like himself and that his guards were people who were also in adverse circumstances and conditions creating a tremendous amount of unwholesome karma for themselves that would result in their own future suffering. Just think of the mind that could hold the situation in this way, being on the receiving end of so much cruelty and violence, and yet on some level understand the commonality of the human predicament and understanding that all of these actions were going to bring their own consequences. That's a very enlarged perspective. And what's what's so amazing is that Tenzin Chodok saw this not as a vehicle of revenge, not that, oh, these people will get theirs, but as a vehicle of compassion. So that's quite extraordinary. Again, from the Dalai Lama, he said, your, may, your enemies may disagree with you, may be harming you, but in another aspect, they are still human beings like you. They also have the right not to suffer and to find happiness. If your empathy can extend out like that, it is unbiased, genuine compassion. So this is a high bar. you know, But I think it's an amazingly ennobling aspiration. It's important to understand though that in these very destructive situations where it's possible we do need to take action, to take appropriate action, to set proper boundaries, work to stop the harmful behavior. So compassion does not mean not doing anything. Well, we can act, even very forcefully, when that's appropriate, paying attention to our motivation. Is the motivation coming out of anger? Is it coming out of resentment or compassion? And for me, the great lesson in this story was the reminder that how we feel and the motivation behind our acts are up to us. Nobody makes us feel a certain way. Somebody wrote a brief biographical sketch of uh, Dr. Chodak, and I just want to read a few lines of it because it captures uh, the essence of this possibility. So this person uh, who was writing it, his name was Claude Levinson. He was describing Dr. Chodak. He said, an appearance almost of timidity on first meeting, a voice so quiet it might be a whisper. Dr. Choda could easily pass unnoticed until you met his gaze, a gaze filled with the perception of one who has seen so much that he has seen everything, seeing beyond the suffering he has experienced beyond all the evil and abuses he has witnessed, yet expressing boundless compassion for his fellow human beings." So being willing to, open to, come close to suffering on any of these levels, whether it's suffering within ourselves, the people close to us, on a global scale, Being willing to open to and come close to it, takes empathy a step further. Because compassion is not only feeling what other people are feeling, feeling what they're going through, but compassion is also that strong motivation to act on that feeling. So as compassion grows we begin to practice an active engagement with the suffering in the world, responding to the various needs of beings in whatever way is appropriate and possible. And sometimes we act in very small and unregarded ways. Maybe it's a small gesture of friendliness or generosity or forgiveness towards the people around us. Sometimes this compassionate action manifests manifests as acts of tremendous determination. There's one story of the doctor, uh, Paul Farmer, who has done a lot of work uh, initially in Haiti uh, and then in many countries around the world setting up clinics uh, and doing tremendous public health service mm. to very uh, underserviced people and he was known for going way out of his way to help just a few people and the people at his clinic would actually criticize him for taking time to go so far to help just one or two people you know when there were so many people at the clinic he could serve and so this is what he said, and it, it really inspires me. He said, if you say that seven hours walk is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with the world. You know, and it's, It just rings so true and reveal so much about our own conditioning. The idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong in the world. So sometimes compassion takes this form of just great determination. Sometimes it takes the form of tremendous courage. Now I think there are many examples of this. Uh, But someone who comes to mind as as a very inspiring example is uh, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, and sometimes in watching the films of his marches, you know, whether it's in Birmingham or up north in Chicago, different places, both north and south, where he would be leading these marches for peace, surrounded by hatred, you know, by people really filled with hatred towards him and filled with violent feelings. And you could just see him walking, maintaining his space of compassion, of love. And it's so powerful. And as we all know, it had a tremendously power, powerful effect on the whole country. So sometimes it takes or it manifests that great quality of courage. There's another story of courageous compassion it's on a more individual basis. This happened a few years ago. Uh, It happened in New York. Somebody had fallen onto the subway tracks, you know, the train tracks and a train was coming, and this man, his name was Wesley Autry, just in a moment, jumped on the tracks, lay down over the person so the train could pass over them. Just imagine this. So, of course, I mean, this was in all the news and... This is what he wrote when he, he was interviewed, of course, many times afterwards. And this is what he said. I don't feel like I did something spectacular. I just saw someone who needed help. I did what I felt was right. I do construction work in confined spaces a lot. So I looked and my judgment was pretty right. The train did have enough room for me. amazing i mean just an amazing moment of compassionate responsiveness there is no particular prescription for what we should do now clearly we're not going to all be jumping on subway tracks although maybe someone might there's no hierarchy of compassionate action. It's not that some acts are more compassionate than others. You know? And so we don't want to create that kind of sense in ourselves of a hierarchy. The field of compassion is limitless. It's the field of suffering beings. And so we can really each find our own way. It can take the form of an active engagement with the world you know, where we really are involved. It can take the form of living in a mountain cave or being at the forest refuge with the motivation to awaken for the benefit of all beings. You know, in the Buddhist tradition before his enlightenment, the Bodhisattva spent countless lifetimes as a renunciate before the great energy of his enlightened compassion flowered in the world. And his his aspiration was not just to alleviate the suffering of a particular situation. His aspiration was really to penetrate to and understand and alleviate the very causes of suffering, which of course are the root of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. And 2,600 years later, you know, we are still benefiting from the power of his compassion and wisdom. So sometimes it's compassion is an active engagement. Sometimes compassion takes the form of developing this great awakened wisdom with that aspiration that it be for the benefit of all we can practice compassion from two sides. We can understand it from two sides. First, as we purify our own hearts and minds, we can do that understanding that this is the most effective way to help other beings. You know, the example given in the text is, you know, if two people stuck in the mud or stuck in quicksand very hard for either to help the other. But if one person has some firm footing, then it's easy for that person to help the other out of the, out of the quicksand or the mud. And we actually hear this every time we get on an airplane. You know, when we hear the announcement, if there's a drop in cabin pressure, the oxygen mass will descend, please put your own on first and then assist those around you. And there's a tremendous wisdom in that. Because if we put our own on first, then we have the ability, in a sustained way, to be of help to others. If we jump into situations without proper understanding and without proper motivation, we often just add to the confusion so one way of practicing compassion or creating the foundation for compassionate response is to do this work on ourselves to develop some clarity and wisdom and purity in the mind so the second way of practicing compassion and these are not mutually exclusive we really want to practice in both ways the second way is to develop compassion through the practice of putting others before oneself. And this practice is beautifully expressed in the teachings of Shantideva, who is a great inspiration for uh, the Dalai Lama. And one of Shantideva's great texts is the guide to a bodhisattva's way of life. And in this text, there are a a few verses which are called uh, the seven-branched prayer. And I'll just read a few of the verses because it gives, gives a certain uh, flavor of this bodhisattva way of life. It says, like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings may I be their ground in sustenance. For everything that lives, as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine, and in ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing, to bring about the benefit of beings." So we might hear this and become inspired, because it's an amazing aspiration, but also we may hear it and become a little daunted. Would we really ever be able to live with this degree of compassion, this great generosity of spirit? You know, we really need great humility. and. Just practice planting the seeds of this aspiration that our practice and our lives be for the benefit of all. We plant these seeds of compassion. One of my favorite uh, little quotations is from Thoreau, the great naturalist he said though i do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been i have great faith in a seed convince me that you have a seed there and i am prepared to expect wonders so we shouldn't underestimate the power of the seeds that we plant of this compassionate aspiration May my life, may my practice, be for the benefit of all. We water it, we nurture it. One of the great turning points in my practice, and what gave strength to the seeds of this aspiration, was the understanding, the growing understanding, that wisdom and compassion are actually expressions of each other we begin to see that compassion is the activity of emptiness this is compassion not as a stance of the ego I'm such a compassionate person And this is compassion not even as a particular practice that we do. Rather, it is the spontaneous expression of a heart and mind that's free from self reference. So, the more we practice and grow in our wisdom, the wisdom of understanding selflessness the more compassion manifests spontaneously. Compassion is the activity of emptiness. There's one uh, Zen, it's a dialogue, it's a Zen dialogue, which has Zen-like quality to it but I really like it. It's a dialogue between two uh, Chinese practitioners, yogis, I'm not sure the pronunciation will be right, Dao Wu and Yun Yan. Okay, so Yun Yan asks, why does the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin have so many hands and eyes? because kuan yin is often represented with just many eyes and many hands as an expression of compassionate action well dao replies and this is kind of it's zen-like obscurity (laughs) it's like reaching back for your pillow in the dark so Yunyan says i understand and dao asks him what he understands and Yunyan says, the whole body is covered with hands and eyes. And Dao says, almost. Of course, that was a lot of the reactions when I was doing some Zen practice with Zasaki Roshi, and I would go in to answer my koans. On a good day, he would say, almost. <laughs> so Dao says, almost. So Yunyan says, Then what do you say? And Dao replies, there's nothing but hands and eyes. You know, and just that difference, the whole body is covered with hands and eyes. And there's nothing but hands and eyes. Compassion is the activity of emptiness. You know, on that level, on that level of understanding, it's not an expression of a self, it's not what someone does It's just the activity of Wisdom. So each of us, in our own way, can plant and water these seeds of right thought and a kind heart. It's thoughts of renunciation, thoughts and aspirations of goodwill, Thoughts and aspirations of compassion until they become the guiding principle of our lives. And even at those times when we're not acting from this place of wisdom, because many times we won't be, but even at those times, the aspiration of compassion can still be the reference point that reminds us that there are other possibilities. So I'd like to close with a teaching from Minjur Rinpoche, just about the development of this quality of compassion. He said, but the best part of all is that no matter how long you meditate or what technique you use, every technique of Buddhist meditation ultimately generates compassion, whether we're aware of it or not. Whenever you look at your mind, you can't help but recognize your similarity to those around you. When you see your own desire to be happy, you can't avoid seeing the same desire in others. And when you look clearly at your own fear, anger or aversion, you can't help but see that everyone around you feels the same fear, anger and aversion. When you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between yourself and others automatically dissolve And the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables become as natural and persistent as your own heartbeat may all sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness may all sentient beings be free from suffering and free from the causes of suffering may all sentient beings have joy and the causes of joy And may all sentient beings remain in great equanimity, free from attachment and aversion.